Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. It's a pretty simple premise, one that has served as the backbone for dozens of movies and TV shows. You get a spaceship, it leaves Earth, it gets lost, and then the people on board have to deal with the consequences. That's basically the premise of Avenue 5, a new comedy on HBO. It's a show set in a not-that-distant future. Space tourism is booming with cruises, and one of the cruise ships gets knocked off course. A trip that was supposed to take eight weeks is now going to take three years. Maybe longer. It's also troubling that they can't figure out exactly how long it's going to take now. So what makes Avenue 5 special among all these lost-in-space shows? Well, it was created by Armando Iannucci, for one. Iannucci creates comedies about people in power and the broken systems over which they preside. In Veep, in the loop and the thick of it, that meant image-obsessed politicians and their handlers. In his movie The Death of Stalin, it's the Politburo, scrambling for power after a longtime leader dies. In Avenue 5, well, basically it's everyone. The captain, played by Hugh Laurie, who literally doesn't know how his ship works. The vain, stupid space cruise company owner, played by Josh Gad. The entitled customers who want free food credits to make up for the inconvenience of being lost in space. All of it very human. All of it super funny. One of my favorite characters on the show is Matt Spencer, who's the head of customer relations on the ship. He's played by my guest, Zach Woods. You might know Zach from Silicon Valley, where he played Jared, or The Office, where he played Gabe Lewis. On Avenue 5, Zach's character is, I mean, I don't want to go overboard here, but he's kind of chaos in human form. He is an ardent but cheerful nihilist. He doesn't really care about making things right with the ship's customers. And as you're about to hear, he doesn't really mind that he's lost in space either. You know, if you don't start taking me seriously, everyone here is dead. And you'll be first. What does that mean? What's any of it mean? This is fate. And it is freestyling with us. This is like jazz fate. I hate jazz. And I hate fate. You got a point. What are you so happy about? I'm a nihilist. No, you're not. Whatever. Oh, my God. Everybody scream. (laughs) (laughs) Zach, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so excited. I was trying to figure out what this character's deal is. Because in the first episode, I just assumed that he would be, you know, a supercilious customer service guy. Sort of how it's set up a little. And it immediately goes bananas. <laughs> how how would you, as the world is turning upside down, almost literally on this uh, spaceship, right? how would you characterize the way that your character, who is the boss of customer service for the spaceship, reacts? Well, the way I thought about it was I think he's sort of like a friendly nihilist. He's someone who 
really doesn't believe in anything at all except to try to be nice to people. And I think he's well-intentioned, but I think his worldview is so askew that when he tries to be comforting to people in distressing situations, it makes them feel catastrophically worse. So I think like, yeah, good intentions, bad execution. I guess I think when the sort of premise of the show was laid out to me, the idea that everybody would be so distressed by the fact that this space cruise is knocked off course and, you know, they're going to be stuck in space for an indeterminate amount of time made sense. But I was also thinking like, well, for what kind of person would that actually be a gift? (laughs) And as an anxious person in my real life, there's been times where when a crisis actually happens, it can kind of be soothing in a way because my interior sense of the world is finally synchronized with my exterior experience of the world. In other words, I've been expecting the catastrophe. So when the catastrophe comes, it's like, ah, the relaxation of harmony between expectation and event. And I think for him, he's someone who always sort of thought, this is all BS, like, like titles and clothes and um, customer service. It's all kind of a paper thin facade. So when that is revealed, through the ship being knocked off course, I think for him it's a relaxing exhalation. I feel like your character is almost like backstroking through yeah. the chaos. Like it's it's really a delight to him. Yeah. Not out of malice, but in fact the opposite. That it's like, well, of course it's madness. Nothing has meaning. Everything is madness. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's a RuPaul quote that I really like, which is, um, we're all born naked, the rest is just drag. And I think that's like a very, reson- that always resonated with me, and I think would definitely resonate with the character uh, Matt on Avenue 5, because, right, there's just this, everyone pretends they're an adult, but there's no adults, <laughs> and there's no structure, there's no, you know, it, I mean, it's all, the choreography is already so shabby and, and uh, no one knows it that well. Did you have a career plan? There's this thing about actors where when you study acting, they really they really hit you hard with like, make sure this is your passion. <clears throat> I always hated that. When people are like, if you can do anything else, do it. You know, you hear that. Like people in acting conservatories say the teacher will, you know, give them a long, hard, flinty stare and then say, if you can do anything else, do it. It's like, I don't know. I don't think that's true. Like, (laughs) people can do all kinds of things. Like, uh, I just think the idea that you have to be just like completely identified with this one major part of your life, I think is kind of kooky. And I don't know. It just it also is like making a certain amount of like bizarro emotional clarity a prerequisite for a creative life. And I think that's dopey and a little self-important too like i remember taking an acting class once when i was 16 and the teacher really said look at the window see those people down there they don't have to be sensitive in the way that we're sensitive they don't experience the world in the same way it was like the worst acting advice in the world which is like erect an ego-based barrier between you and the people of the actual earth it was so crazy so um Yeah. Luckily, I actually never planned to be an actor. I thought I was going to be a musician when I was a kid. I played trumpet and then I got braces and I couldn't really play anymore. And it opened up all this free time when I used to be practicing trumpet because I would practice hours and hours. And then I started taking improv classes just sort of as as a lark. And I really liked it. And, And I really wanted to just keep doing that. I remember 
at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, which back when I started was a very small little theater in Chelsea. How, how old were you? I was 16. I would take the train from Pennsylvania up to New York, and I had this sort of secret comedy life. I never told anyone I went to school uh, with that I would do that because I liked having this, I don't know, shadow, you know, shadow life as an improv person in New York. But Katie Dippold, who wrote The Heat and um, Ghostbusters and a bunch of things, she was also taking classes then. And I remember having an IM conversation with her where she was like, what would your dream be? Like, what would you want to do if you could do anything? And I was like, I think I would want to temp during the day so that I could do improv at night. <laughs> and I really meant it. It wasn't some bohemian, you know, affectation. I really thought I just want to do improv. But then I started doing commercials to make money. And then commercials led to an agent. An agent led to my first movie role. And things sort of snowballed in that way. But I, I think if I'd had designs to be an actor, I would have sort of talk myself out of it in a weird way, possibly. How long did it take you to get from where you lived in Pennsylvania to the UCB in Chelsea? It was about two hours door to door. And I would take the New Jersey Transit up and back. But because I was on a high school schedule, I would get back really late at night from doing shows. You know, I'd go out to Williamsburg. So to get to Williamsburg is like add another 45 minutes. And then I would get back, but I'd be waking up at six in the morning. So I would drive home from the Hamilton train station in the winter with the uh, windows down and I'd crank the AC and I would blast music because I would be falling asleep. I'd be so tired from not sleeping. So I just, oh, and I'd scream. I mean, if you had, if somebody had seen me, it would have looked as psychotic as it was. When you were 16 years old... <laughs> And you walked into leaving aside the 101 class. Sure. The first class, which is often, I think, full of advertising guys and people who heard it might be neat to take an improv class and so on and so forth. God bless them all. Mm -hmm. But let's say 201, the class you take after the first class, where everybody is at least moderately serious about doing improv. Mm -hmm. How many of the other people in your class were under 18? None. How did the other people feel about the, did they know you were a 16 year old? Well, first of all, back then UCB was enough of a sort of underground thing that it actually wasn't that many advertising people. It was weirdos. It was like, it was a real bizarro collection. I remember my first, in that 101, there was a guy who said, you know, you went around and said, okay, why are you taking the class at the beginning? And he said, uh, well, my ex is a comedian and I have a deep hostility towards people who do comedy. And my therapist recommended I take this class. <laughs> that was the first day of the first class. But when it, it came- shows his knife. Yeah, it was the it most ominous. And he was kind of this like slightly um, shriveled guy. You know, he was not an imposing guy, but somehow that made him more scary when he said that. You know, we went around the circle and everyone's saying why they came to the class. And then it, it came to me and I said- uh, well, first of all, they say, "How do? You, what brought you to the class? And I went, train. And the <laughs> improv teacher, Billy Merritt, who's like a lion of, of improv. <laughs> I took a class from him once. He's a sweetheart. Yeah. He was so gentle with me. Like it, later, I was teaching classes. If someone had said that, I would have been like, all right, we're moving on. Like, but he was, he was like, okay, but what really brought you to the class? And I said, well, listen, I know I look like a child, 
but I have a glandular disorder and I'm actually in my late 40s. And everyone laughed like a pity laugh, which was generous. And then I went, no, I'm serious. And then everyone got really quiet. And then I said, no, I'm just playing. And then again, there was like a, a diminished pity laugh. I was such a schmuck. I was just like so horrible. And I really owe so much to Billy Merritt for not, for, for having the compassion to be like, oh, this is an insecure 16-year-old trying in vain to be funny at the beginning of a comedy class. But then pretty quickly, I feel like I assimilated to the culture of that school. And by the second class, it was it was really nice. I never felt like anyone was giving me the eye because I was a kid. It it was such a sort of motley crew that I feel like if you were reasonably good at it, people were nice to you. How old were you when you started doing shows there that weren't uh, associated with classes? I think I was 17 or 18. It was right before I graduated high school. Yeah, I was on this improv team called um, Dillinger. After that, I was kind of cooked. I was like, okay, well, this is what I'm, I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to do this. And and uh, yeah, that was that. That is something that people fight for to get on one of those teams. Grown adults. <laughs> 30-year-olds. True. 29-year-olds knifing each other over that, yeah. metaphorically. And you were 17 in yeah. high school. Yeah. When did you, did you, throughout high school, did you never invite high school people to one of your shows? Never. Not even one time? Not even one time. I told one friend of mine that I was doing it, but, yeah, I don't know. I think I felt... Um, a little protective of that experience. Maybe I was just hoarding it for myself. Maybe I was, I liked the version of me in New York better than the version of me in in Fairless Hills, Pennsylvania. And so I sort of wanted to keep the one from contaminating the other, you know? I'm not exactly sure why I didn't talk about it, but I never did. What did your parents have to say about you taking a two-hour train ride after school I mean, honestly, I had read that you had done this as a teenager, and I just assumed that you were taking 11 a.m. Saturday classes exclusively. <laughs> the fact that you were literally doing it after school and c coming home after an 8 o'clock show on a two-hour-long train ride when you had school the next day is bananas. Yeah, and often the shows were later than that. I mean, one thing that was, I think, fairly specific about my upbringing is my parents sort of treated us all like little adults from the time that we were pretty young. And I think that has its pros and cons. But one of the pros is that I felt pretty comfortable looking after myself. And I think they felt pretty comfortable sending me off into the <laughs> into the New York City night. I mean... um. You know, they really trusted me. And the truth is, like, I never did heroin or, um, you know, got into a, a fist fight. But I'm just saying, like, I never got into, like, a bad situation. So, I don't know. It's interesting, like, with all the helicopter kind of parenting, there's probably a middle ground between letting your kid be, like, driving home with the windows cracked and screaming uh, and you know, monitoring their every move and like moving to the town where they go to college. But I would rather be on the former 
end of the spectrum rather than the latter. Were you also doing non-improv acting? No, I wasn't doing it, but I would go to Philadelphia too twice a week. So it was like, because I was doing brass ensemble. I was still trying to play trumpet because I felt like it would help me get into college. So I'd go to New York for twice a week and then Philadelphia twice a week. So I spent a lot of time on trains. High school was by far the hardest I've ever worked in my entire life. Like no competition. I would like everything subsequent to that has felt like a vacation. Like it was so exhausting. Um, but I wasn't doing any other acting. It was just the improv stuff. Oh, I'm talking too much probably, but okay. This is literally an, an interview. interview. You're yeah. being interviewed, yeah. <laughs> I did take this summer intensive acting class. And I remember it was, this, this is the same program where the, where the woman said the thing about you're basically better than the people below on the street. There was another teacher who was talking about like substitutions. This guy drove a Harley to his, you know, in the taught, he was one of these guys who lords, lords over his kingdom of the acting class. And I remember him talking about how he'd seen this movie about a town that had dragons. It was like a fantasy dragon movie. And how there was a line in it where the hero says to the council, lucky be a village that has heroes, but pitiable be a village that needs them, which I still don't really know what that means. It sounds like something, but I actually don't think it means anything. But he started talking about he started talking about uh, a news story he'd read about a Middle Eastern village where someone had been sentenced to be assaulted. And he started talking about this. One of the most grisly things I've ever heard in my life. So upsetting. And he starts talking about it and talking about it. And he's kind of working himself into a froth over this like actual like crime against humanity. And then when he's worked himself into like a total froth, he goes... Lucky be a village that has heroes, but pitiable be a village that needs them. And at that moment, I was like, this is sick. Like, I, I want no part of this. And I didn't go back to an acting class for like eight years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was so screwed up. It was so weird that he chose such a, such a abjectly awful story. And then combined it with the dumbest, like, dragon dialogue. Yeah, I didn't like it. What was the first big part that you got? The first big part I got was um, a movie called In the Loop that Armando Iannucci, who made um, Avenue 5 and Veep and all these different shows, cast me in. That was such an incredible experience because it was shot in England in this old army barracks. And it was with James Gandolfini. And I remember taking off from JFK and flying over New York on the way to London and just feeling like dizzy with gratitude and then landing in London. And they put us up in this. I don't know how an independent movie could afford this, but we were in this like old Victorian hotel. And I would just wander around the streets of London crying, basically, like tears running down my face because it was so... It was so beyond anything I'd ever imagined for myself. And James Gandolfini was this incredibly like soulful, supportive guy. He took us out to dinner and to shows and was just like such a host. And, you know, when he had nothing to gain from that. And yeah, it was such a crazy feeling. And then when I started getting 
I got a job on The Office after that. And at some point I realized, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. Like, I have no technique. I've never studied it because I was freaked out by the dragon guy. So then I found this old acting coach, not old in years, but like who I'd also met at that same program, who I actually loved. And I was like, can you help me learn how to act? Because I'm getting these opportunities and I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. So anytime that I wasn't working, I would fly to New York and we would do scenes from like Tennessee Williams plays. And I took like voice classes and Alexander technique and all these different, I sort of made my own little patchwork conservatory because I just, it's going back to that feeling of fraudulence. I was just like, I need to have some sort of qualifications here because otherwise I'm going to totally... Uh, be horrible. We'll hear the rest of my interview with Zach Woods when we come back from a quick break. Still to come, we'll talk about whether or not he feels comfortable working alongside real professional actors now that he is himself a real professional actor. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Astrology is as old as civilization itself. And today, it's easier to access than ever before thanks to the internet and smartphones. This week on Throughline, how astrology almost went extinct and made a remarkable comeback. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. Hey everyone, it's I, John Hodgman of the Judge John Hodgman podcast. And I, Elliot Kalin of the Flophouse podcast. And we've made a whole new podcast, a 12-episode special miniseries called I, Podius, in which we recap, discuss, and explore the very famous 1976 BBC miniseries about ancient Rome called I, Claudius. We've got incredible guests such as Gillian Jacobs, Paul F. Tompkins, as well as star of I, Claudius, Sir Patrick Stewart, and his son, non-sir Daniel Stewart. Don't worry, Daniel. Get there someday. iPodius is the name of the show. Every week from MaximumFun.org for only 12 weeks. Get them at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Zach Woods, stars alongside Hugh Laurie on the TV show Avenue 5. It's airing now on HBO. I want to play a funny clip from your first movie in the loop, which is such a great movie, written and directed by the guy who created the show that you're currently on, Armando Iannucci. It's a spinoff of a of a similarly great television show called uh, The Thick of It. And your character is named Chad. He is a junior staffer at the State Department, the United States State Department. And in this scene, he is confronting a political advisor who's named Liza, played by Anna Chlumsky. And uh, she wrote a paper condemning the government's buildup to war that is now making the rounds at various government offices. And Chad is giving her the business over it. Hey. Hey, I just want to say congratulations. Your paper got a major citation. You must be psyched that Karen brought it up. Yeah, well, that was, you know, her call, yes. not, not mine. Uh, you couldn't write a paper that clashes more violently with the current climate than the one you wrote if you were trying. And it seems like you almost were trying. I wasn't trying. So, okay. Believe me. You're like the woman from The Omen. Uh, you've given birth to a demon, and now it's going to kill you. You probably identify with the kid from The Omen, right? Ooh. See, you're an only child, aren't you? I got to say, I, I don't understand how my parents' limited reproductive ability reflects badly on me. I'm the sperm that made it, so. <laughs> Liza. Um, huh. I'm being called by our boss. Oh, okay. Retreat. Thank you. See you later. Yeah, have fun with yourself. Okay, have fun with your uh, career kryptonite. 
<laughs> you, you have been given a lot of parts where your job is to gently mutter something horrible. <laughs> that's very funny. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. I would say like two leitmotifs in your career, besides, of course, being hilarious, a very gifted actor and so forth, are you... Your job being a guy with soulful eyes who therefore can say horrible things. <laughs> um, and also people saying mean things to you on camera about how you look. <laughs> Those two are like what ties your whole career sure, together. Sure, exactly. Those are, that's, those, are my, uh, those are the two horses pulling my cart. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I liked about your character on... Silicon Valley, besides that he is so deeply invested in taking care of everyone around him, despite apparently being a sort of venal <laughs> business bro, mm -hmm. is that over the years that the show existed, you would just reveal horrific traumas <laughs> casually. <laughs> Just little suit, like I know what it's like to only be able to save half your family, I think you said at yeah. one point, yeah, yeah. if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really like the character I played on The Office was this guy named Gabe. And I felt like the joke of Gabe was that like he's all ego. He's so fragile that everything becomes an exercise in ego and everything is a chance for him to either lose or gain respect. And after playing that, I was kind of like interested in the opposite joke, which is like, what if there was someone who was born with like an almost pathological lack of ego where all they care about is other people and the joke of of Jared I think is sort of uh, the character in Silicon Valley is like yeah what if you what if you were just born missing that piece if that were true even times people had treated you really really viciously you would just have a sort of bemused <laughs> reaction to it you would never there was something I said oh I, I think in the finale I said something about like I had a, a foster mother who thought I was a demon and she tried to kill me. Or no, no, I had a foster mother who thought I was a devil and wanted to kill me. I think it was really traumatic for her. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was such a great line they wrote. I, I'm going to play a clip of my guest Zach Wood's character, Jared, on, on Silicon Valley. This is from the sixth season of the show. And basically, you know, we, we talked about how generally calm and deferential he is as he deals with the man children that constitute uh, this startup company. But in, in this scene, we hear uh, Richard, who's the company's founder, pushing Jared one step too far. I ought to knock your teeth out, you man. I, 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 I didn't. Hey. I was state raised. You think I'm scared to catch a case on some bullshit? I'm sorry, Jared. I, I didn't mean it, okay? I, I'm sorry, Gord. I didn't mean it. You keep her name out of your skanky little mouth. You little, little Hey, hey the, this is a place of business. Oh, my God. Don't shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> he grabs a BB gun. A I think pink, it's a pink BB, BB gun. gun. <laughs> yeah. That was fun to shoot. The scene. But I guess also the BB gun. But it was we were shooting. Uh, <laughs> we were we were that was truly no pun intended. I realized as I was saying it. Um, that was fun because 
I started, I always thought that Jared had some sort of relationship to the penal system. Like at different times I would improvise that like I spent most Mother's Days at at uh, San Quentin because my mom was incarcerated or like my grandmother I think was in San Quentin. I don't know if that ever even made it into the show. But I just thought Jared would be very conversant in prison slang. So before we, we were on set shooting that scene and between takes I was like looking up prison slang there was one where it's like, you want to dance on the blacktop, which I think means just like fight. There's all these like slang from from incarcerated people that I tried to integrate because I thought he probably learned those from his grandma. I have to say, I had to stop watching Silicon Valley because it gave me too much business anxiety. That's funny. Um, but I think it also gave me some kind of cultural anxiety. And I wonder what it was like for you to be on that show for so long. It's a wonderful show. Thanks. Um, To be on that show for so long in that polar fleece vest, living in the space in between people admiring tech business people and people hating the consequences of tech business people. Yeah, I think that's... and. Sort of over the lifetime of the show, the public sentiment towards tech, I think, really shifted. I think at the beginning, it was sort of like, oh, these guys are silly with their like ping pong tables at work. And by the end, it was like, oh, these people have like pulled at the thread of democracy and unraveled it. I I mean, that was like a fascinating. And one thing I really liked about the final season is I thought the writers did a good job of making it a little bit darker and not just being like, look at these kooky nerds with all their money and being kind of like, what was it that that, was it Facebook who had the slogan move fast and break things? Yeah. I heard an interview with Mike Judge, actually, where he was saying, like, that's a lot less cute after they moved fast and broke things. And I thought that was a really good point. One of the writers on the show was talking about, I thought this was so interesting. He said, a lot of the tech innovations have been by socially maladjusted people covering their blind spots. So in other words, he was saying, like, Mark Zuckerberg had a hard time making friends, so he created Facebook. You know, I I think he said the people in Google felt like no one else was smart enough, so they created Google. There are all of these apps that are basically the assistive devices for people who are socially inept in some way, but that now they've become monetized and have proliferated in such a way that we are now living in the coping strategies of a few nerds, is the way he described it, I believe, which I thought that was such an interesting idea. It's like we're all using their equipment, whether or not we needed it. And then I think our muscles, some of those muscles are atrophying because we're using this this assistive device for a skill that we might have had in the first place to begin with, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that Mike Judge is a creator like I really loved his movie Extract, mm-hmm. maybe his least remembered movie, a really great one. And of course, Office Space have this very deep undercurrent of despair mm. and like terror at being caught in systems, you know, social systems and economic systems, both like just this kind of dread at the heart of them. <laughs> Well, he said something early on when we were making the show that I thought was really interesting, which is that he had, before he made office space, he had an office job, which he hated, but he felt lucky to have it, which made him feel even worse. In other words, he didn't think he was too good for it. He thought, I'm lucky to have this job and I hate it. So what do I do with that? 
I thought that was such an interesting thing. It wasn't that he thought he was better. You know, and also I think that's the thing about his satire that I like. It's the opposite of that acting teacher looking down at the people saying we're deeper than them. I think Mike doesn't feel better than the people he satirizes. It's not scornful. I feel like the sort of point of view of of a lot of the stuff he's made is kind of aren't we all ridiculous? And aren't these systems depressing, <laughs> you know? And I think that's a that's a form of satire I can get on board for more than the sort of puritanical stuff. So your first film role was on a set with Armando Iannucci. Mm-hmm. And he has a very unusual way of doing things. For folks who don't know his work, he also made Veep for HBO. And he's the creator of Avenue 5, which is the show that you're on now. And he's also made several wonderful movies and uh, some great TV shows in England. How would you describe what he does to make a show? Well, first of all, the process is extremely collaborative in a way that's really nice, where you'll get a script, but it's sort of a preliminary document. And it's already really funny because he has this whole comedy mafia of these writers like Tony Roach, and he worked with Jesse Armstrong and Simon Blackwell and all these different people. So you'll get this massive script. And from that, you'll go into rehearsal and you'll play with it and you'll improvise and you'll talk. Then they'll do another script that incorporates some of that stuff. He describes it as like making a chicken stock where you pour in all these ingredients and then you boil it down and then you pour in even more ingredients and then you boil it down. So it's sort of a reduction that happens over time until you've got the stuff that eventually makes it. It's just a long list of creative profanities. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Then he just skims off the obscenity and that's, that's that. But then you shoot, and the way he shoots is very actor-friendly in that, like, there's no marks, like, um, probably people listening know what marks are, but... but It's like when there is a a shot that needs to be composed or when there is lighting that needs to focus attention in a certain place, an actor has to stand in a particular place at a particular moment for that to happen. And that will literally often be marked on the floor with tape. And that's a, that's what a mark is. Yeah. Someone told me if you watch old Spencer Tracy movies, he does this kind of like, like sort of folksy soulful thing where he like has his hands in his pockets and he'll look down and it's like very charming idiosyncrasy of his. But someone told me that that's just him trying to find his mark so that he's, <laughs> that he's in focus. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but, but anyway, Armando doesn't have any marks and there's no real blocking and you can go wherever you want and you can say whatever you want. At least when we were shooting in the loop, you know, television structured a little differently, but we would do these long takes where we'd play around and improvise. And and at one point, a camera guy, I remember sort of whispering to me like, hey, would you mind just like kind of hugging the desk there? And Armando came in and was like, no, no, no. You know, it was a very sort of like free swim feeling to the whole thing. It's a weird introduction to shooting because shooting has very little to do with that, actually. It's, it's yeah, it's much I more can, formal. I can only imagine what the transition from that to even, I mean, look, the office has uh, had an uh, aesthetic that was different from most American television shows. But nonetheless, if you're shooting any single camera television program, there's just a lot to get through in mm-hmm. a week because you've got a week to make an episode. And for that reason, I'm sure everything has to be pretty on target. Yeah. Although I've been lucky that I've just sort of leapfrogged from like show to show to show where they're extremely receptive. I I haven't been on any kind of like autocratic, like auteur shows. I mean, a lot of like I think Armando or Mike Judge or Alec Berg, those people are auteurs in a, in a sense, but they don't carry themselves like that, which is a relief. 
and a gift because no one would ever, I would never question them. If Armando was like, you have to hit this mark and say this line and be this, you know, it's like, well, I saw a death of Stalin. I'm not going to argue with you. You know, like you're, these are, you're really talented, like, but they're um, receptive. And I, I've found over my fairly short career that I, that confidence correlates with uh, collaborativeness, that people who know that they're good feel less clingy about control because they understand that they are, their taste is the ultimate sort of filter through which everything is run. And so they're interested and they're curious. And And the people who I feel are sort of either less experienced or less confident are the ones who rule with an iron fist. And I think the results are worse. Do you, at this point in your career, feel comfortable belonging in the room? Yeah, in a certain way. That's a good question. Feel comfortable belonging in the room. You mean in the sense that like, I don't just feel like I snuck in through the back door? I guess I still feel like I snuck in through the back door, but I guess now I feel like most people snuck in through the back door. It's not that I have it's not that I have greater faith in my own marriage. It's that I have less faith in, in other no, that's not true. I, I, I think um I think I'm a little more comfortable with good enough, which is not to say phoning it in or not trying really hard. I just think it's not really about me. Uh, it's a little, you know, one of the things I even think about this, like I was talking to somebody about this with dating once. And I was saying, like, when you're in your like early 20s, dating is excruciating because every time you go on a date, you're auditioning for your self-worth. It's like. Am I lovable? Am I lovable? No. Oh, God. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's like and nothing can sustain that weight. I mean, it's so freighted with consequence, you know, but um, as you get older and as you learn who you actually are, it kind of just becomes an interesting way of connecting with other people. And you don't feel like all your money is on, you know, lucky number eight. And I feel that creatively, too. I just feel... I don't know. Maybe like my self-worth is a little bit more distributed now. So <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Zach, thank you very much for coming and being on the show. It was very nice to meet you and get to talk to you. Thank you. I'm like I'm a huge fan of this show. I absolutely love listening to it. And I was so um, touched that you would have me on. Zach Woods, Avenue 5 is super, super, super funny. Uh, its debut season is airing right now on HBO. I've really been loving it. Go check it out. And it just got picked up for a second season. So, you know, watch season one now and then watch that one, you know, in whatever, a year or whatever. Uh, also, can I just say, if you have not seen the movie In the Loop, which was Zach's feature film debut and was written and directed uh, by the creator of Avenue 5, Armando Iannucci, I genuinely think it is one of the five or so best comedies of the last 15 years. It is so brilliant, so hilarious. So watch In the Loop, too. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where our resident bird nerd Kevin Ferguson has noticed that the winter migratory birds have arrived, including northern shovelers, ring-necked ducks, and pied-billed grebes. Pied-billed grebes, coincidentally, are the bad guys on Avenue 5. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, the guy who made me say the phrase pied-billed grebes. 
Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And one last thing, we have recorded a lot of interviews on Bullseye over the years. Why not check out an interview with Armando Iannucci? We've had more than one of them. He is always brilliant and insightful. And he is the creator, yes, that's right, the creator of the television show Avenue 5. Okay, that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.